Well, good morning. Um, am I on? Can you guys hear me back there? Two thumbs up in the back? Good deal. Good, they're even awake in the, in the back back there. Uh, the song that the team just did is, uh, is about marriage. I uh, told Daniel it was a very appropriate uh, song to and have been asleep under a rock somewhere, you're very aware that um, on June 26th of this year, our Supreme Court made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. Now, I am a reformed engineer, and uh, graphs and charts are part of my love language. So let me see if I can, let me see if I can explain this one to you. I know it's hard to see because of the scale of it. But it starts in 1996 and goes until 2015, and it charts, um, essentially, people who think that same-sex couples should have the same rights as traditional marriage. That's the dark line. People that agreed in 96 was 27% of our country agreed, and 68% disagreed, thought it should not be valid. And you can see, hopefully you can just see the trajectory of it. We get to about 2012, and it evens up. That's when our president came out in favor of same-sex marriage for the, for the second time. Um, and then now, after the Supreme Court decision, we're at 60% believe of our country believe that same-sex marriage should be valid, and uh, 37%, according to Gallup's poll, um, believe that it should not be valid. You can see the real, the real trajectory change is in the last three years. Look at that, in the last three years, how that gap has changed. Um, what, what's behind the rapidity of this progression? Um, especially, what's the thinking behind it? And uh, in order to encapsulate what I think may be typical of the thinking behind this, I want to turn to that well-known philosopher and theologian, uh, Brad Pitt who back in September of 2008 put into words the arguments that many used to justify same-sex marriage. He was explaining why he had just donated $100,000 to fight California's November ballot initiative that would overturn the state Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. This is what Brad said. Because no one has the right to deny another their life, even though they disagree with it, because everyone has the right to live the life they so desire, if it doesn't harm another. And because discrimination has no place in America, my vote will be for equality and against Proposition 8. So really the bottom line for many people is if it does no harm, then what's the problem with it? Um, no less a political conservative than former Vice President Dick Cheney has said, this is what he says, he has a gay uh, daughter, he says, with respect to the question of relationships, my general view is that freedom means freedom for everyone. People ought to be free to enter into any kind of relationship they want to. So you're free to do as you please as long as no harm is done, right? That, that seems to be uh, one of the prevailing sentiments as we as a nation think about this issue. Um, but there's this question that has to be in the back of your mind. 
but what if harm is done, right? But what if harm is done? In June of 2002, the Synod of the Anglican Diocese of New Westminster authorized its bishop to produce a service for blessing same-sex unions. It was to be used in any parish of the diocese that requested it. A number of synod members walked out in protest to protest the decision. They declared themselves out of communion with the bishop and the synod, and they appealed to the Archbishop of Canterbury and other Anglican primates and bishops for help. Now, prominent theologian J.I. Packer was amongst those who walked out. Many people have asked him why. This is part of his response. He says, why did I walk out with the others in protest of that same-sex union endorsement? Because this decision, taken in its context, falsifies the gospel of Christ, abandons the authority of Scripture, jeopardizes the salvation of fellow human beings, and betrays the church in its God-appointed role as the bastion and bulwark of divine truth. Packer is saying, harm is done. Okay? Now, what if Packer is right and Pitt is wrong? What, is that, what does that mean for us? What if more is at stake here than just my personal choice in marital partners? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that I, that I lean towards Packer, not towards Pitt in my theology. And if he is right, then you and I have a great responsibility before God and to our friends to stand to compassionately and graciously stand against the tidal wave of support in our culture in favor of same-sex marriage and stand for our friends who may be vulnerable uh, to this ruling. Okay? So what I'd like to do today is explore five contras, five things that same-sex marriage is opposed to that cause me to stand against this ruling in love for God and for neighbor. Okay? So if you want to open your Bible like to the very first page, past the index, the book of Genesis, I would like to pray for us and then we'll walk through these things that um, I think are so important for us to consider. Would you pray with me? God, have mercy on us. Help us to be lovers of your truth. To love your truth is to love you. And it is to trust you. And help us to love our neighbors with that truth. Help us to hold it with compassion and humility and confidence and faith and obedience. So Lord, have, have mercy on us now and form your people by your word. Form your people by your word, we pray in this time. In Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. Sam Storms is a pastor and theologian, and he really put his finger, I think, on what is really at the heart of this debate. He says, I don't want to come across as overly simplistic, but the debate in our society over homosexuality, transgenderism, and same-sex marriage is first and fundamentally about moral authority. He says, everyone has a moral authority, even people who, by our judgment, are extremely immoral. Everyone makes choices about right and wrong based upon it. For us as Christians, our moral authority is the Bible. We believe there is one and only God who has revealed himself and his will in the Bible. 
Therefore, the issue is not whether morality will be reflected in our laws and imposed on our society, but which morality? He says, let me illustrate. He says, although I disagree with Luke Timothy Johnson of Emory University, I have great respect for his honesty. He's an accomplished New Testament scholar, but denies many of the teachings of the Scriptures. Not long ago, he acknowledged that he and his liberal seminary colleagues do, in fact, this is a quote from Johnson, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. We are fully aware of the weight of scriptural evidence pointing away from our position. Yet we place our trust in the power of the living God to reveal as powerfully through personal experience and testimony as through written texts. So the first domino really to fall that's of great concern that topples the others in my mind is that same-sex marriage... uh, is contra scripture. Okay? I mean, I've got you open to the very first page of your Bible where God brings marriage into being, part of his creative goodness, right? And there he lays the foundation for all that we believe about marriage and all that will be built upon it. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, down in verse 26. I apologize if you can't see those. Um, That background's not very accommodating. It says, uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. Turn one more page to chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, where we find that the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place uh, with flesh. And the Lord God had... I can't even read that. That screen's so bad. I'm sorry about that. Let me go over here to my notes. Um, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last... Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, our our goal today is, is not to make the Bible say what we want it to say, but it's to let the Bible speak to us. And that, that which the Bible says to us, we believe is God's best for us, His good and kind will for us. So just listening to what these passages say, I think there are a handful of things that, that are pretty foundational here, that are evident, fairly evident. First, our, our maleness and femaleness is according to God's design, right? It says, male and female, He created them. This is part of God, the, the beauty, it's really the apex of the beauty of God's creation. Uh, 
that he made us male and he made us female. You know, second thing you can see here is that this maleness and femaleness is central to our bearing the image of God, right? Back in verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the only attribute of God, of of man that's mentioned in close connection in this verse, in this little section, later it'll talk about ruling, But here, the only thing that's connected directly to imaging God and being made in God's image is our gender, our maleness and femaleness. Our sexual identity is the only thing explicitly linked here in Genesis 1 to our being made in God's image. It's the the first thing that sets humankind apart from the rest of creation, that makes us unique and exceptionally valuable in the eyes of God Our maleness and femaleness are inextricably caught up in our ability to reflect God to the world. It would seem that right at the center of who God intends us to be as a people that reflect His image and bear His image is that we're male and female. It doesn't say that we're tall or that we're white or anything else about us. It says that we are male and female. Now, we can make another observation here. We would say that the marriage union as described here in Genesis 1 and 2 is explicitly heterosexual, right? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, okay? This seems inescapably inescapable to me that... The way God envisioned marriage and brought it into being, it was explicitly heterosexual, right? And we could add that the woman is divinely desi- the divinely designed complement to man. Nothing else in all creation would do. None of the animals were suitable. God made woman uniquely to complement and complete man in this extraordinary one flesh relationship that only a man and a woman could experience. We'd see. Last observation out of this I make is that one of the purposes of this union is procreation, right? The bearing of children. Um, it says, God blessed them in verse 28 of the first chapter. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay. It's evident that this. This union that God is bringing about between a man and a woman is designed in part when it's functioning right, when, when everything is, is working properly uh, to be able to multiply and fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. I like, I like what Kevin DeYoung writes about these first two chapters. Just, if you just read them honestly, he says, the narrative strongly suggests what the church has almost uniformly taught, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A different marital arrangement requires an entirely different creation account, one with two men or two women, or at least the absence of any hints of gender complementarity and procreation. It's hard not to conclude from a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and 2 that the divine design for sexual intimacy is not any combination of persons or even any type of two persons coming together, but one man becoming one flesh with one woman. Now, at this point, a different argument is often introduced into the conversation. And uh, I ran across this 
uh, little flowchart. Uh, it's, it's an outline of the biblical arguments and refutations against biblical arguments uh, against same-sex marriage. It says, so you still think homosexuality is sinful. And if you say, and therefore gays shouldn't be allowed to marry. And if you say no, then you're congratulated on being part of civilized society. But if you say yes, and you say why, and they say, well, because Jesus said so, and says not true. Jesus never uttered a word about same-sex relationships. Okay? And so let me, um, let me just... Uh, let me just talk to you about the red letters in your Bible, okay? <laughs> it's a problem, okay? They help you see when Jesus is speaking. Uh, quotation marks probably would have served us just as well. Now, I have a Bible with red letters in it. You about can't buy them without it. Um, but the idea that somehow all the teaching of the Bible is at one level, and those red letters... Ooh, ooh, Jesus said that. Who said the rest of the stuff? Just God, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's, the, you, then it, I mean, nobody would say that, but that's what we're saying. And that's why, um, you know, the words attributed to Jesus are no more the words of God than those attributed to Moses or Peter or Paul or John. Um, plus, just think about this. Jesus never said anything about idols or idolatry. Didn't talk about it. Never used those words. Should we assume we have a green light on idols and idolatry because Jesus didn't say it in red? Okay. You can see, you can see the problem um, with that kind of thinking. And even though Jesus never discoursed on same-sex marriage directly, uh, he did discourse on marriage. And you see it here in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two flesh, two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Clearly, Jesus is referencing and, and embracing as foundational the teaching we just looked at in Genesis, that marriage is between one man and one woman, and Jesus here asserts that it is for a lifetime. Now, some will object that what Jesus is talking about here is really not marriage. He's talking about divorce. Come on. This really isn't about, even about marriage. You know, divorce from What? is the answer, okay? It's divorce from marriage, and Jesus has to teach us about marriage for us to make sense about why divorce is such a grievous thing. Okay. Now, others have objected, as, as, our, uh, as, our, as our fancy chart would indicate here. Uh, if you said... Um, Yes, I believe that homosexuality is, is sinful and gays shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to marry. Uh, one of the answers is because the Bible clearly defines marriage as one woman and one man, as we've been talking about. And the, the rebuttal to that is wrong. Wrong. 
The Bible also defines marriage as one man, many women, one man, many wives, and many concubines, a rapist and his victim in conquering soldier and female prisoner of war. Um, the idea is that marriage in the Bible is all over the place, right? You got, you got a, a man with a whole bunch of wives, you have a man with a whole bunch of wives and many concubines in addition to his wives. Um, so the idea is that the Bible doesn't teach a uniform view of marriage. And you know what? They're absolutely right. The Bible does not teach a uniform view of marriage. Okay? Marriage is all over the place. But it, here it's helpful to, to recognize the difference between description and prescription. Okay? What the Bible describes is a mess of marriage all over the place. I would, I would assert that what it describes, what it proscribes rather, what it prescribes is one man, one woman for a lifetime. Okay? It's describing stuff all over the place. Um, it doesn't have a uniform description, but anytime the Bible endorses or commands us about marriage, it's always in the context, as far as I know, without any exceptions, a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. Okay? So there's a difference between description and prescription, between marriage in the Bible not being described as uniform and there being no prescribed norm. Every endorsing description of marriage in the Bible is one man and one woman, as far as I know. Now, um, N.T. Wright is a Christian, um, a really smart Christian, okay? Um, he has to dumb his stuff way down so that I can make sense out of it. And he's, um, he's, he's right, he's talking, they've asked him what he thinks about same-sex marriage. It's interesting. He says, with Christian or Jewish presuppositions, or indeed Muslim, if you believe what it says in Genesis 1 about God making heaven and earth and the binaries in Genesis are so important. I told you he was smart. That heaven and earth and sea and dry land and so on and so on, you end up with male and female at the end of all that. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. The last scene in the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth. And the symbol for that is the marriage of Christ and his church. It's not just one or two verses here and there which say this or that. It's an entire narrative which works with this complementarity so that a male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. He says that the whole Bible, the narrative, the whole Bible points to this. Um, and even objectors to this line of thinking cannot point to a case of affirmation for same-sex marriage in the Bible, even though many have tried to, talking about Jonathan and David's friendship. Okay? Because the, there's a place in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, um, I believe it is where... Uh, David uh, kisses Jonathan and says of him, your love to me was extraordinary. This is after Jonathan has died. He says, Jonathan, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And so uh, many um, have tried to persuade us that what this is, is this is a homosexual, erotic, homoerotic relationship. This is romance. Um, 
And I, and I, I would doubt that very, very seriously. I don't think it's required to believe that. I mean, think of it, guys. Think of it. Um, the context where this could happen, these are two warriors. Think band of brothers. Okay? And you could hear this same language being said at a funeral. You know, that bond that forms in warfare uh, amongst brothers is extraordinary and unique. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all that they're thinking about that. But more significantly, um, it was David who wrote this. Okay? David said in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What is David talking about? What's the law he's thinking of? Okay. Significantly, it's the law of Moses. David is an Old Testament Jew. He's under that law. He is keeping it. Okay. He, is, he, is, he is keeping it in every aspect. And part of that is, are verses like this. There are a couple of them from Leviticus. Leviticus 20, the law to which David has just exalted so beautifully, says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Okay. So the law which David was under fully, gladly, delightedly obliged to keep as a faithful Jew, how this story of him with Jonathan could be told as a homosexual love um, without a hint of condemnation or repentance in light of the law, that what the law says about those things is beyond me. Now, this is one of the many novel, new interpretations that proponents of same-sex marriage are advancing. To my knowledge, I have not been able to find any Christian theologian prior to the 20th century who advocated same-sex marriage. I'm not aware of any. Zero. So for several thousand years, the church has been monolithic on on this issue of one mind. And again, the Bible can be made to say almost anything. That's quite different than letting the Bible speak or seeking to discover what it says. So let me caution you about using the internet to do biblical research. There is no screening mechanism for blogs, okay? Anybody can post whatever they want without any credentials, experience, sanity, or or anything. And you know this, right? Um, So let me me encourage you as you you research this, and I'm going to urge you to do that, uh, use reliable sources and I will post some for you this week on our elder blog on the, on the web. But uh, use people whose life you know and whose teaching you trust um, and start there. Okay, Start there. So I think the first domino that falls is that same-sex marriage is contra Scripture. And this is a, a great and sorrowful thing for many. Okay. It, it's going to hit on several more dominoes that are going to fall um, as a consequence. Here's the second one. I believe that same-sex marriage is contra-worship. Contra-worship. It's against worship. 
uh, interesting thing, day of the Supreme Court decision, there's a civil rights uh, leader in the United Methodist Church. This is what he tweets. Maxie Dunham is his name, and he says, Jesus, not the Supreme Court, defines marriage for the church. Now, there's another fellow who is the director of civil and human rights for the United Methodist Church, responds to Maxie. This is what he says. Um, and I'll, I'll read it to you because it's so small. Bill Mefford is his name. He says, well, I never asked Jesus to define marriage, but I have sensed the joy of the Holy Spirit today as so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ celebrate that their love for each other is recognized at long last. Okay. Now, underlying this second tweet is that this is acceptable worship. That the joy of the Holy Spirit is evident in these marriages that are at last able to be formed. Um, and so what, what these kind of things bring to mind for me is a really curiously uh, sobering passage in the book of Leviticus. It's in Leviticus chapter 10, and it goes like this. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You bet Aaron did. He just, he just watched his two sons die because they offered unauthorized worship to God. Now, this is a really, a really big idea to unfold, but let's say at least that there, there is a kind of worship that is offered to God in his name that is wholly unacceptable to him. So unacceptable that it brings not the joy of the Holy Spirit, but swift and certain judgment. We cannot simply approach God as we please and offer to Him any old sacrifice and expect His blessing. The, the scriptures are full of Cain and Abelish stories like that, right? And that is perhaps for me the most worrisome, one of the most worrisome things about the endorsement of homosexual practice and same-sex marriage is that they take on an idolatrous shape, the shape of unacceptable worship. Okay. And let me suggest that that idea comes to us. This is not my idea. This is Paul's idea. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and listen for the language of idolatrous worship. Okay. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says... Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now can you hear in Paul the intertwining of idolatry and sexual immorality. In particular, he's exhibiting homosexual practice as an example of that. Can you hear the language there? Can you hear how he ties them together? Tony Reinke writes in his blog that Robert Gagnon, a leading scholar on sexuality in Scripture, says these themes are closely related for Paul because both idolatry and same-sex intercourse equally oppose the designs of the Creator. Gagnon sees several strong connections that link Romans 1 to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Pagan idolatry is twisted because it is the act of rejecting the Creator and replacing worship of Him with a worship of what He has made. Similarly, homosexual acts are twisted because they reject God's natural design for human sexuality. Thus, homosexuality and idolatry are related. Both are evidence of a twisted distortion of God's design for men and women. Both dehumanize men and women. Both are rooted in a rejection of the Creator. That is to say, the distortions of idolatry and same-sex intercourse are foremost rooted in a worship disorder. See, same-sex marriage in a terrifying way is contra-worship. It is offering a strange and unauthorized fire to the Lord. And when God is not worshipped rightly, He is robbed of His glory and, and we of joy as God releases us to the consequence of our choices. Now, it's important to realize what John Piper wrote, I think is really helpful, that God does not forbid sexual sin because He's a killjoy but because he opposes what kills joy. He's not a killjoy, but he opposes what kills joy. And so we are faced just purely secularly thinking, just observationally thinking with these kinds of tragedies and sorrows that are following those who are entering into same-sex marriages. In almost every country where it's legal, same-sex marriages Uh, end in divorce at a much higher rate than in unions with a man and a woman. A study found that male couples in Sweden were 35% more likely to divorce than heterosexual couples. And lesbian partners were over 200% more likely to divorce. Whether the couples had children made little difference in the relative rates. The first study on same-sex couples with civil unions began in 2000 in Vermont. Research found that 15% of straight husbands said they'd had sex outside their relationships, compared with 58% of gay men in civil unions and 61% of gay men who were partnered but not in civil unions. See, because um, because same-sex marriage is contra-scripture, then it's contra-worship. And it's contra joy, ultimately. It robs people that we love and care about deeply of great joy. And that leans me towards the third contra that I'll mention to you. Um, It's contra, same-sex marriage, I believe, is contra love. And that sounds really odd at first, because that is what those of us who oppose same-sex marriage are accused of, and tragically, many of us are guilty of, but not necessarily so. 
Julie Rogers is a blogger who recently left Wheaton University um, and, and joined the, those who endorse same-sex marriage. She says, I've been increasingly troubled by the unintended consequences of messages that insist that all LGBT people commit to lifelong celibacy, abstain from sexual relations. She says, no matter how graciously it's framed, that message tends to contribute to feelings of shame and alienation for gay Christians. It leaves folk feeling like love and acceptance are contingent upon them not gay marrying and not falling in gay love. When that's the case... When communion is contingent upon gays holding very very narrow beliefs and making extraordinary sacrifices to live up to a standard that demands everything from an individual with little help from the community, it's hard to believe our bodies might be an occasion for joy. It's hard to believe we're actually wanted in our churches. It's hard to believe the God who loves us actually likes us. Well, I think there's much to learn from the closing statements that she's made there. Uh, Again, Robert Gagnon responds... To her, he worked with her at one point, and he responds this way. He says, replace gay marrying and gay love with any form of prohibited sexual behavior, like brother-sister marrying or second spouse marrying, to expose the absurdity of this reasoning. See, the church manifests the love of Christ precisely in not allowing people to engage in self-dishonoring, shameful practices that God abhors. Loving one's neighbor includes reproving one's neighbor, and if need be, even church discipline is an act of love. Acceptance of sinful behaviors abhorrent to God, however, is moral sloth at best, functional hate at worst. Tom Schreiner, gosh, uh, it's over 25 years ago, he said, imagine if someone had a bomb in his hand that was due to detonate. The person holding the bomb really enjoyed holding it and didn't believe it was a bomb. Some people told him, what you are holding in your hands is a bomb. It will explode in 10 minutes and destroy you. Others replied, how can you be so unloving and hateful to tell him that what he holds in his hand was a bomb? Can't you see that he enjoys holding that piece of equipment? You are shaming him and making him feel bad for holding this thing when it is perfectly normal to do so. So the people who defend the person's right to hold the bomb appear to be more loving than those who warn him against it. But after 10 minutes passed, it will be clear who was really the more loving. He says, the principle here is easy to see. We cannot let the world shape our definition of love. We must let God's word in the scriptures define for us what is loving. Otherwise, we will fall prey to the deception of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. To simply look the other way, let alone to actively bless same-sex marriage in light of verses like this, can hardly be any more loving than were we to, than were we to embrace and bless adultery, thievery, idolatry. All right, Uh, 
Very briefly, it seems to me that as a result of these things, same-sex marriage is also contramission. Um, marriage between a man and a woman is designed by God as a model of Christ's love for the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul has just finished some really strong teaching on uh, the role of a man in loving his wife and the role of a wife in respecting and honoring her husband. Strong, really strong teaching. And then he ends this way. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of a man and a woman coming together in marriage to become one flesh is a mystery that's intended to reflect Christ's love for the church. Peter O'Brien in his a commentary on this passage says Christian marriage is to reproduce in miniature the beauty of the beauty shared between the bridegroom who is Christ and his bride who is the church and through it all the mystery of the gospel is unveiled our marriages by our male and femaleness and our appropriate roles coming together is intended to portray the mystery of Christ's love for the church Mess with marriage, we impair witness. We hinder the gospel of Christ. Same-sex marriage ends up being contra the spread of the beautiful gospel of Jesus. And let me just lastly uh, underscore a couple of things. I, I would say lastly, it's contra history. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote a dissenting opinion to the Supreme Court's ruling, and he said the majority's decision is an act of will, not legal judgment. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carth I can't even, I don't even know who these people are, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs. He says, just who do we think we are? Justice Scalia added, the five justices who composed today's majority are entirely comfortable concluding that every state violated the Constitution for all of the 135 years between the 14th Amendment's ratification and Massachusetts' permitting of same-sex marriages in 2003. They have discovered in the 14th Amendment a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive at the time of ratification and almost everyone else in the time since. These justices know that limiting marriage to one man and one woman is contrary to reason. They know that an institution as old as government itself and accepted by every nation in history until 15 years ago cannot possibly be supported by anything other than ignorance and bigotry. And they are willing to say that any citizen who does not agree with that, who adheres to what was until 15 years ago, the unanimous judgment of all generations and all societies stands against the Constitution. Sam Albury writes, for virtually all of church history, the people of God have held that homosexual behavior is sinful. This is still the case for the vast majority of Christians around the world today. Those in the church who demand that we affirm homosexual behavior are proposing something that virtually every member of the universal church would shudder at. And the one place where this is being pushed is in the Western church. At the precise moment, our culture is making this a defining issue. This should give us enormous pause. Beware of what one of my seminary uh, friends called breakthrough theology. He had a pastor who was excited about breakthrough theology. New theology that nobody had ever thought of before. Um, that's not a good thing. 
Seminary guys, if you're writing your paper and no one's ever thought of it before, you might want to rethink turning that in to Doc or some of the guys here. Radical new theology in an area where Christian thinkers have been in near universal agreement for millennia should give us pause if it doesn't stop us dead in our tracks. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means there's probably no closing song today. Um, I've gone too long. Um, First thing it means, and we'll we'll talk about this again next week, and I, I hope to talk more about what this means for us and what the shape of our hearts should be in response, but um, it means we should be settled in our convictions in these matters. The tidal wave of opinion shift on these matters is stunning. You saw the chart. We went went from being a two-thirds majority to now being nearly a one-third minority. There will be tremendous pressure applied to assure that you comply with a prevailing belief about marriage in our culture. Personal pressure, media pressure, perhaps even legal pressure. That's the concern of Justice Alito. He dissented, saying, Today's decision usurps the constitutional right of the people to decide whether to keep or alter the traditional understanding of marriage. The decision will also have other important consequences. It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. You need to be firm in your convictions and mere social or political conservatism will not prevail. I mean, we, we saw what someone as staunchly conservative as Vice President Cheney, his opinions change on this matter. See, if we are right and love requires truth on its side to be truly love, then our convictions, our convictions must be based on the teaching of Scripture. They must be. And so this week, as I promised, I'll, be, I'll post some short articles that I feel like are really helpful perspectives on this. And some of our elders will probably join in that process as well. I imagine on our elder blog, on the front page of our web, website. If you were just going to read one little book on this subject, um, I would recommend uh, this book. It's... Um, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? It's little. Look at that. Um, It's a small book. You could read this book. And I I would recommend it. On the back, Russell D. Moore, who's a really important guy, says every Christian should read this book. I think he's probably right. (laughs) It's it's a really good book. And it, uh, it simply, clearly, and honestly explains what the Bible really does say. It honors its title in that regard. But check the blog this week, and we'll post some more things to encourage you in that. You must be settled in your conviction. Um, You must be ready to rescue those who are swept away by this tidal wave of opinion. When the President of the United States and the Supreme Court, entire Christian denominations, and a select few high-profile Christian leaders are all telling people, this is a good thing. 
God blesses this thing. I fear that there will be many who might otherwise have stood who will be swept up in that council. And so, North Wake must be a place, and you must be a people who love well, who love well those who struggle in this area and differ from you, perhaps, by their conviction. We must be a place that is so radically accepting while not being affirming. Wesley Hill writes, perhaps one of the main challenges of living faithfully before God as a gay Christian is to believe, really believe, that God in Christ can make up for our sacrifice of homosexual partnerships, not simply with his own desire and yearning for us, but with his desire and yearning mediated to us through the human faces and arms of those who are fellow believers. We must be the arms and faces for those who are swimming upstream against our culture and their desires. Many believers, brothers and sisters, who are choosing to stand in obedience to what they understand Christ is calling them to, we must be near to them and loving them well. Um, this, this wisdom I'm about to share with you comes from a North Waker. Okay? They write, for me personally, my church community has been the most healing and fruit-fertilizing element in my journey with same-sex attraction. Every time I disclose it to brothers and sisters that I'm same-sex attracted and they treat me and accept me the same way they did before I told them, I am immensely encouraged to keep fighting my sin and believing that I'm in the right community. He goes on to say, The same-sex attracted will only feel safe in a church community where everyone is self-aware about their own sin and discloses it frequently. We have been rightly charged as hypocrites and we will only minister to others well when we are acquainted with our own weaknesses and frequently confess them. You see, Paul's list of, of terrifying sins, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, is so much broader than homosexuality. We must lovingly address the whole list and guard ourselves and one another from them all. And we must not, we must not forget the next verse. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, our only hope is in Christ and the cleansing from sin that comes from the shedding of His life's blood on the cross for our sin. It's our only hope, and it is the only hope for our friends. You know, I, I believe Jesus to be our supreme example in these matters. He was reputed to be a friend of sinners. And He was a friend who was glad to say, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins as it relates to this matter, the way we have lacked love and failed to honor and bless those who suffer and struggle in this area. Forgive us for being ignorant 
of your word and what it says to us about these things. Help us to be a city set on a hill, a bright light on a lampstand. Help us to dispense grace and truth in equal portion, beautifully, lovingly, steadily. Father, protect us as we stand against um, something that our, our culture now holds dear. We ask for grace and mercy, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you, if you're a guest today, that we would love to talk further with you, get to know you. Some of our elders are available down here in front. We'd love to chat with you. And usually outside in the courtyard area, there's a tent. Um, there's sometimes there's some donuts there for you uh, if the young people have not gotten to them. And uh, we would love, we'd love to hang out with you and just get to know you and answer any questions we can about the church. I hope you'll join us either down here or, or out there after the service. And uh, if you'll stand... Let me just dismiss us with this benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a blessed day.